All right, take your Bibles with me, turn to Acts, book of Acts, please. Acts chapter 7 again, Acts chapter 7 again. Last week we talked about um, Stephen and his sermon that he preached and how uh, through generations we have really tossed aside the fact that God should be the center or the core of unity. And so today um, I want to continue on through that. While you're turning there, Acts chapter 7, I want you to think about something. And um, I'm a little... A little disappointed I have to preach this, um, mainly because everybody was so happy tonight. What I have to preach is not going to be popular, um, but I think it will, um, I think it, I, I know it's true. I know it's true, it's just not popular, let's put it that way. And here's the statement. Following God will cost us ourselves. It's a pretty full statement, but following God will cost us Ourselves. I want you to take a journey with me. I want you to think about some things. I want you to walk with me uh, to the Sea of Galilee. In fact, the city is Capernaum. Most of you have probably never been there. Some of you may have and may understand what it is I'm about to describe to you. But as you as we walk there, you can see the dusty streets. You can see the uh, really the rocky beachfront of the Sea of Galilee. And here come all the fishermen from a long night's work. And they begin to mend their nets. And they begin to make preparations for the next day. And so they come in. They fill everything that they need to get done. They must repair the boat. They must replace their stock of supplies, whether that be food, and they must repair any nets that have needed taking or needed repairing. We get to watch. We get to watch as they make these preparations. We get to sit back and enjoy watching these men do their work, and I enjoy watching uh, men who are good at what they do. I love learning from guys like that, and these fishermen are those types of men, and they are, know what they're doing, they're seasoned, they're well-seasoned. And they begin doing these things, and really out of the blue, we watch as a man walks up to these men. And he says the following words. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The men, we watch the men as they leave their preparations... And they begin walking after this man. A little bit further down the beach, this same man fought now has two followers, walks up to another group of men and says the following words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The two younger ones of the group, they turn to the older one and kiss him. And again, they drop what they are doing, and they walk after this man. They leave their preparations behind. I think it's no doubt that you could say, and you guys understand, that this is Jesus calling Peter and Andrew, first of all, and then James and John, and they kiss their father Zebedee, and they follow after Christ. Consider what Jesus said to the men that were fishing that day. He said, follow me. 
and I will make you fishers of men. What did this entail? What, did, what was this going to cost them? What did this mean? It is every disciple's duty to follow God. Get that. It is every disciple's duty to follow God. If you are not following God, you are not a disciple of God. If you are not a, a, a disciple of God, then you are not following God. But if you are a disciple, you will be following God. So what does that entail? Some of us don't understand what it's going to cost to follow God. Acts chapter 7, verse 54, might just teach us. The Bible says in verse 54, when they heard these things, after they were, be, you know, for 50 some odd verses, Peter, or excuse me, Stephen preaches to them. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I'd like to preach to you a message I've entitled, The Cost of Unity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all you've, do, you've done for us and continue to do. Father, we love you. And may we count the cost. May we understand what it's going to take to follow you. What it's going to take to be unified with you. Would you show us that this evening. And Father, may our lives be changed because of it. Help nobody from in this room to leave here the same as when they walked in. Father, help us all to leave here differently. And challenge the spur to do something for you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The cost of unity. You see, Stephen was not one of the disciples that Jesus came to that day and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He was not one of them. He was not uh, one of the 12 disciples. But the physical words that Jesus said to those men on that day are still the words he says to each of us today. Follow me. Follow me. And Stephen followed. Stephen followed him, but what do but do we truly know what it takes to follow God? Do we truly know what it costs to be his disciple? We we in North America have this really watered down version of what it means to follow God. Well, I get saved and I yeah, I attend church once, twice, maybe three times a week. And after that, it's pretty much good. That's our version of following God. Jesus tells us what it's going to take to follow him. I want you to go with me to Mark chapter 8. And I want to read to you some context to help you understand where he's coming from. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27.
Mark 8 and verse 27, the Bible says this. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. And one said, Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? He's asking them this question for a very specific purpose. For a very specific purpose. Whom do ye say that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he begins to instruct them that of the gospel. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to be buried. And three days later I'm going to rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Now I don't know what took means. But I believe it's either he grabbed him by the arm and pulled him aside or he grabbed him by the the lapel if they had lapels on robes back then and said, no, that's not going to happen. I won't allow it to happen. He took Jesus. Rebuked and when, excuse me, but when he had turned about and looked on the other disciples... He rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Now let me stop there. Jesus asked them, Whom say men that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, and some Elias, and some say just another prophet. But Jesus asked the question, But whom do you say that I am? Peter pipes up with the correct answer. Thou art the Christ. And so would all of us. We would all stand up and say, Thou art the Christ, but in the very next phrase, we're saying, Not so, Lord. That's not the way it's going to happen. I don't care what you think, but you're not going to do that. And we begin rebuking God. We begin rebuking the Son of God. And Jesus immediately says to them, get thee behind me, Satan. Why? Look here. Verse 33. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Wow. You know what? Peter, Peter came up with the correct, correct answer. Thou art the Christ, which means you are, you are Christ. You are God in the flesh. You are the Savior of the world. You are going to be everything to us. But in what he did next showed Jesus that he cared more about the things of men than they do about the things of God. Here's what I want to get to you. You can say one thing and do another. We say, thou art the Christ and we serve you. And Do we savor the things of men or do we savor the things of God? Because if we savor the things of God, we will do things differently. This is the context around what's going on. Look at verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, 
he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, here we go, let him, what? Deny himself, stay with me, and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see... North American Christianity has no idea what it costs to follow Jesus. We have no idea. Our culture is still somewhat accepting of us. We still receive tax-free status. We still can have a church building. People aren't throwing bottles, flaming bottles in full of gasoline into our church building windows while we're here. They're still somewhat accepting of us. We don't have persecution every single day. However, I believe that we are not too far away from having that completely flipped upside down. There are very few places in the world where it's popular to be a Christian. There are very few places in the world where you can maintain your social status and be a Christian. There are very few places in the world where you can even maintain your familial status and be a Christian. People will kick you out of their society. People will kick you out of their family. People will not have anything to do with you if you become a Christian. But tonight I want to look at the life of Stephen. And I want to compare it here to what Jesus says. I want to look at their lives together and I want to show you what it's going to cost to follow Christ. The first thing that I want you to see is number one, deny himself. Deny himself. I want you to think about Stephen. Stephen had already denied himself. You see, he was a part of a church that was giving money and, and giving everything they owed, and they were taking their lands and their houses and they were selling them and they were giving everything to the church so that everybody could have all things common. He'd already denied himself. Most of us would never think of doing such a thing. That's my house. That's my car. That's my land. And listen, I'm putting myself in the same situation you are. He was ministering daily to the Grecian widows along with six other men. He was one of the ones chosen to do so. And now, in Acts chapter 6, he is out in the city doing what the Bible calls great miracles and wonders. And he had the chance to deny Christ. He had the chance to deny Christ. When the magistrates and the chief rulers of the synagogue come to him and say, what are you doing? Is this so? Did you say this? Do you serve Christ? He had the opportunity to say, no, I deny Christ. I don't have anything to do with that. But instead, you know what he does? He denies himself. 
so many of us are good at denying Christ, but terrible at denying ourselves. So many of us are good at denying Christ, but not denying ourselves. I can't even deny myself some food. I can't even deny myself some sleep or a TV show or, a, or really anything for a season. I, I can't do that. Instead, we deny God our time with him long before we will ever deny ourselves food. But David said, I, I, I long for you. More than my necessary food. I, I want your word. I, I want to spend time with you. You see, we don't deny ourselves, but we will deny Christ daily. And we are just like Peter more than we think we are. And we say, oh, I would, I would never do that. But daily, these are things we say. These are things we say. We will deny Christ on a daily basis because I'm too tired. Or I'm going to deny Christ because I don't want to look foolish in front of my friends. Or I'm going to deny Christ because of, I mean, fill in the blank, we all know things that we're doing on a daily basis that are denying Christ because our pride gets in the way. Just like Peter. When Peter, God said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. In our society, we will deny Christ so that we don't sound like a bigot. Listen, I'm not for going out and preaching and saying that, you know, you all better repent or you're going to hell and maybe we should say that more. I don't know that that's the best use of our words. But understand this. We will deny Christ before we will ever deny ourselves. And that is an absolute shame. I'm standing here today saying the same thing. I do the same thing, and it's an absolute shame. Jesus Christ died for us. He gave everything for us, and we're so easy to deny him and so easy to push him aside, yet we won't push anything aside for ourselves. This is exactly what Peter did, as I said before. And you know what Peter did? When he realized he did that, he went out and wept bitterly. He realized the immensity of what he had just done. He realized the intensity of what Satan was trying to do to him. And he realized that Satan was successful. Jesus said to him, Satan hath desired to sift you or separate you as wheat. And he said, listen... God said, you will deny me three times. No, I will not. No, I will not. I'm not going to do it. It won't happen. And he denies him. And when he realizes that the cock crows and their eyes meet, the book of Luke tells us, he weeps bitterly. Maybe it's time we get serious about denying ourselves. Maybe it's time we realize how we have denied Christ and maybe some of us need to weep bitterly about it. To deny himself. Number two, he had to take up his cross. What does this mean? What does it mean to take up your cross? 
pick up your cross, carry it with you. In Luke, it tells us to take up our cross daily. I believe there are many applications to this, but what did Jesus mean when he said take up the cross? I want you to think about something. When Jesus healed the man that was lowered through the roof by four men, when he healed him, he said something very similar to this. In fact, I wrote it down. It said, he said this, arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. Take up thy bed and walk in another place. Why in the world did he have to take up his bed? Why couldn't he just leave it there? Wouldn't you want to leave it there? Man, I don't want to be in that bed anymore. I've been in that bed for forever. Get me out of here. I don't want anything to do with that thing anymore. I want to be free from it. But he says, take up thy bed, a very specific commandment. Now I want you to think about this. Why did he take his bed? Here it is. This is what I believe. This is my opinion. Please don't mark this down and say this is the gospel truth, but this is my opinion. When he was carrying that bed around, walking, people know who this man is. People understand that he was sick of the palsy. When he was carrying his bed around, that was a testimony. And I don't care if people didn't know him. Hey, why is that guy carrying his bed around like that? Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I'm carrying this bed. This is a symbol of what I used to lay on. And then Jesus came and now it's a symbol of my freedom. This is the same wording that Jesus uses here. Take up his cross. What does it mean to take up your cross? Again, this is purely my thoughts. What is, what is a cross? What is a cross to you? To me, it's a symbol of suffering. Something, somebody that suffered immensely. Why? For my sin. That's exactly what it was. It was a symbol of suffering. But you know what else it is? It's a symbol of salvation from that suffering. You see, our sins, the Bible says, our sins were nailed to the cross. We no longer have to worry about them because it's a symbol of salvation. Folks, this is my opinion. Again, when we take up our cross, we are taking up the symbol of our suffering from sin. And the salvation from that sin, again, these are my thoughts. We can carry around a cross. People saying, why are you carrying that cross? Because let me tell you about what Christ did for me. Let me tell you about the suffering that he went through. Let me tell you about what it means to be freed from that suffering. Take up your cross. Take up your symbol of suffering. Take up your symbol of salvation. What is, what is we physically wear a cross around, right? Everybody who, now everybody in Bible Baptist Church has to wear a cross. So we can take it up every day. No, I believe we need to live like Jesus changed something in us. We need to live like Christ did something in our lives. We need to live differently than we used to be. 
We should talk like Jesus changed us. We should act like Jesus changed us. Every person that Jesus healed, look back. Every person that Jesus healed had this ability. Think about blind Bartimaeus. Hey, hey, how come you don't have patches over your eyes anymore? I can see. Let me tell you about what Jesus did to me, did for me. And we could spend all night going through person after person after person. There's a, there's a man laying by the pool of Siloam. And when the angel touched that pool, saw the first person to get in, he could be healed. And this man had nobody to help him in. Jesus walks by and sees him laying there and he touches him and he says, Take up thy bed. Take it with you. Go. Tell everybody else what I did for you. The maniac of Gadara. Go into Decapolis and tell everybody what I did for you. Tell everybody about your suffering that you had in the caves. Being, being full of legion. Go tell everybody the freedom I have given you. Take up your cross. Did Stephen take up his cross? Did Stephen take up his cross? Stephen carried his cross around with him everywhere he went. The Bible says that he was a spirit-filled man. We see him preaching Christ. We see him living Christ. He's full of the Holy Ghost. We see him doing wonders. We see him doing miracles. He is showing people what Christ had did in his, done in his life. You see, taking up our cross is a bit of a burden. But it's a symbol of suffering. And it's a symbol of salvation. And both of those things, again, please understand, that's my opinion. But taking up our cross is an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus. And it means that every single day we pick that old rugged cross up. Jesus isn't on it. And we tell everybody, I'm a Christian. I am, I am Christ. I, 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 I want to be like Christ. I want to be a follower of his. I, I, I want to deny myself. And because Christ denied himself, he took everything for me. He suffered, he bled, he died for me. Stephen did that. And in an opportunity, when he was able to throw that away and say, listen, I don't want this cross anymore. He stood up for it. And he said, let me tell you boys something. Let me tell you something. There are all throughout the ages you have denied and denied and denied and denied the prophet of God. And now here's Christ. And you've crucified him as well. And he stands up and he takes up his cross. So number one, deny himself. Number two, take up his cross. Number three, very simply, follow me. Follow me. Could I say follow me in another way? What about this? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. You see, following God entails something. 
It entails yoking up with God, walking side by side with God, and learning of him, and walking with him, and following in his footsteps. Let me ask you a question. Was Stephen following God? Was Stephen following God? Yes, he was. You don't believe me? Let me show you something. He never took his eyes off of God. Never. Look with me. Go back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Look at verse 55. But he, being Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven. Watch this. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. He never took his eyes off of Christ. He never took his eyes off the prize. Even when they were gnashing on him with their teeth, he looks up and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I see him. I see him. I'm following him. The person that I want to please. The person that I want to follow. Stephen quite literally followed in Jesus' footsteps. Almost every step that Jesus made, Stephen made. Let me prove it to you. Stephen and Jesus did the will of their father. They followed God. Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Stephen preaches Christ. Stephen does mighty miracles. Stephen serves Both of them, both Jesus and Stephen, were falsely accused. And both of them took it patiently. Both Jesus and Stephen were put to death unjustly. Both Jesus and Stephen both looked to the Father. When Jesus was on the cross, he looked up to God and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And most incredibly, they both ask God to forgive their murderers. Jesus said, asked, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Stephen, kneeling down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. You see, quite literally, he walked where Jesus walked. He did what Jesus did. He preached. He did. He, he, he followed Christ. He was put to death unjustly. He was accused falsely. He looked up to heaven. And he asked God to forgive their sins. What did it cost Stephen to follow Christ? Acts chapter 7 and verse 58. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, 
calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You see, it cost Stephen himself. Write, that, write it down. It cost himself. It cost himself. Stephen lost his life physically. But far before Stephen lost his life, listen to me now, far before Stephen lost his life, he gave his life. There's a big difference. Far before Jesus lost his life, he gave his life. You see, being a disciple of Christ, being a follower of Christ means that we are going to have to give ourselves. The cost of unity with God is ourselves. Well, what does that mean? Unfortunately, we are not willing to give up ourselves. Some of us would say, well, I have a wife, I have, a ki- I have kids, I have a job, I, I have friends, I have family, I have, what are you fill in the blank, I have all of these things. How can I, how can I give that up? There's some men and maybe some women here today that if our country were to go to war today, we'd sign up. We'd sign up, we'd give ourselves, we'd quit our job, we'd quit doing what we were doing, and we would sign up. I'll go fight for our country. Men and women do it daily, every single day. They fight for our country. Why do they do that? Why would we do that? Why would we, why would we leave our families? Why would we put aside those things? Because we love our country. We want to fight for it. We want, we want it to be the best it can be. And we want freedoms to remain. Some of us would go to war for a country in a heartbeat. Some of us would sacrifice God to go to war. But even beyond that, some of us would sacrifice God. And some of us even sacrifice our families for a job. Or for a hobby. Or for a multitude of different things. We deny Christ. We sacrifice our families for things that we want to do. But when it comes to sacrificing ourselves, all of a sudden we have these noble causes that we have to stand for. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beg you, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Why? It's your reasonable, reasonable service. And so often we think what's reasonable is, oh, I could never die 
for the cause of Christ. I mean, I have a family to take care of. I have a, I have a house that I have to pay for. I have cars that I have to put together. I have to, all of these things that I have to do. I can't follow. We'll follow for every hobby. We'll follow for every job. We'll follow for every other thing. We'll give up some of those things. We'll give up things for our country. But we won't follow Christ. So what does it mean to give ourselves? What does it mean to give ourselves a living sacrifice? Very simply it means, here am I. Here am I. God, if it means that you want me to stand in front of religious men that could kill me and preach your word to them because they need to hear it, then so be it. You know what Stephen got? Stephen got a standing ovation from God. When he looked up into heaven, what did he see? He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Who do you want a standing ovation from? I'll be honest with you. There are times when I desperately want a standing ovation from men. But the Bible says if I get that, I have my reward. Standing ovation from God will last for eternity. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? What are you willing to pay to have unity with God? What are you willing to pay?